As Russia attacked cities and military installations across Ukraine, raining down missiles and moving tanks across the border, President Biden called Vladimir Putin's actions a premeditated war. Putin is the aggressor. Putin chose this war. And now he and his country will bear the consequences. I'm James Hellman from The Washington Post, and this is Please Go On. For this week's episode of the podcast, I really wanted to hear the perspective of someone who grew up and lives in Ukraine. My guest is Olga Tokaryuk, an independent journalist and researcher who has been based in Kyiv. We might have regarded independence as a gift when we were children, but later in life we realized that it was not just given to us, we had to protect it with our lives. Olga was born in 1985, six years before the Soviet Union collapsed. Her personal story is closely interconnected with that of an independent Ukraine. Olga, a non-resident fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, recently wrote an op-ed about the need for Ukrainians to fight to defend their country. We talked on Tuesday, before Russia began its onslaught. Here's our conversation. Hi, Olga, it's James. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you well. You're in Ukraine right now. I can't imagine it's, it, what's the feeling? What's the mood right now in Ukraine? Well, we speak just one day after uh, President Putin, Russia's president, announced the recognition of so-called uh, uh, separatist republics of Donetsk and Luhansk. And before that, he was speaking for an hour about fact that he sees Ukraine as an artificial state. Basically, he doesn't believe it has a right to exist. He expressed a lot of grievances over uh, the course that Ukraine has been taking in the last years over Ukraine's anti-corruption reforms, uh, uh, decommunization, and over the fact that there is actually a genuine democracy in Ukraine. He tried to portray Ukraine as a country full of Nazis and a puppet of the West. Это у них декоммунизация называется. Вы хотите декоммунизации? Ну что же, нас это вполне устраивает. So, uh, you know, the, of course, the reaction here in Ukraine has been very angry to that, but uh, this is not something very surprising. And actually what is happening now over uh, around Ukraine, what has been happening for the last four months since November, when the first reports about Russian troop buildup started to come in, fits into this pattern and fits into this Russian and its current leaders' uh, vision of Ukraine and Ukraine's history. When you wrote this piece for the Post at the beginning of February, you spoke about the anger that you and other Ukrainians are feeling. But can you explain that anger in the sense of how it's rooted in this yearning for freedom and independence for Ukraine? Yes. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, It seems like Ukrainians are perpetually angry. In fact, it is it is true because uh, there could be no other reaction when you hear claims that your country doesn't have a right to exist, that you as a citizen of this country, that you as someone who feels Ukrainian by identity are artificial or that you are inferior in a way. Putin's rhetoric about Ukraine and Ukrainians is uh, uh, very imperialistic. You know, he still sees Russia as a, a great empire. And the the biggest grievance is about Ukraine. 
it has been said that Russia is not an empire if it doesn't control Ukraine. And it looks like now for Putin and for his regime, the mere existence of a democratic, sovereign and independent Ukraine, uh, they perceive it as an existential threat. Why? Because uh, Russia has been uh, growing increasingly authoritarian. There is no uh, opposition in Russia. The opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, has been jailed and will probably get another more lengthy prison sentence soon. There was an attempt to poison him, and when it, it failed and he survived, they put him behind bars. In Russia, there is there are no free media, there is no freedom of speech, people are not free to protest. So in this sense, what we have here in Ukraine is a complete opposite. Because uh, throughout uh, 30 years of Ukraine's history, we've seen two revolutions led by the people when, uh, you know, people were spontaneously taken to the streets, protesting against what the government was doing or planning to do. And these protests actually led to change. And in some cases, they swept away the government. This is one of the reasons why Putin fears Ukraine and hates Ukraine so much, because he feels threatened uh, by this kind of popular protest. He sees them as a Western plot, as something that is engineered and manufactured by outside powers. And he's really afraid that a similar thing could overthrow his regime in Russia. You know, democracy obviously is fragile and democracy is hard work. We've seen that here in the United States over the last few years. And you make such an important point, Olga, because Robert Kagan, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago, has a, a great piece in the newspaper this week talking about Putin's geostrategic thinking and how if he gets Ukraine, then all of a sudden he borders all these different countries like Poland and Hungary, and uh, and it becomes much easier for him to try to seize the Baltic states. But what you're saying, I think, is so important and, and bears emphasis, which is that Putin is afraid of the Ukrainian experiment succeeding because as Ukraine succeeds, it is a model for not just other former Soviet states, but for Russia itself to move toward more freedom, having opposition parties, having dissent. And Putin seems terrified of the Ukrainian success story, if I understand you correctly. Exactly, exactly. I agree with that. And, you know, when we take a look back on the 30 years of Ukraine's independence, uh, for a long time, for more than 20 years, Russia was using soft power and other tools to control Ukraine by corrupting its elites, by introducing its agents of influence in the Ukrainian politics, by tying Ukraine to Russia economically. You know, when the Orange Revolution broke out in, in 2004, it was a revolution in response to an attempt to rig presidential elections and to make pro-Russian candidate Viktor Yanukovych win. After three weeks of peaceful protests in the center of Kyiv, managed to achieve the result of re-election, another tour of elections in which a pro-Western and pro-democracy candidate Viktor Yushchenko won. And Yushchenko came to power. Uh, he was a president for five years. And then I think was like the first time when the Kremlin and Putin, they realized that they are dealing with something like really powerful and strong, that this uh, people's protest is, is a challenge and is a threat. And when they saw it again in 2013, when actually Yanukovych 
became a president. So in the second uh, attempt, he was elected in a free and fair elections in 2010. And in 2013, he was a president when the new protest erupted, this time as a response to his decision not to sign an association agreement with the European Union. So again, a popular protest erupted that lasted this time for several months, and that was finished in February 2014 with uh, special forces and riot police uh, shooting down about 100 protesters on Maidan Square in central Kyiv. And this was when uh, Russia decided to launch the aggression and annex Crimea and uh, uh, attack Ukraine militarily. So probably that was the moment of despair when they realized that uh, the soft power has failed and they reacted very emotionally. It was clear that they had this plan for a long time. It was not a spontaneous decision or something, uh, you know, they didn't think through. So they just seized this opportunity and attacked Ukraine. And what is happening now is yet another escalation of this despair somehow in, in the Kremlin and of Putin that they are unable to control Ukraine with other means, with soft power. Russia's soft power has failed in Ukraine, so they are resorting to hard power and see it as the only solution. Yeah, this is an incredibly important history lesson. Unfortunately, I think a lot of Americans haven't been following these various revolutions. If you could speak a little bit about what your role was in your piece, you write about how during the Orange Revolution, the one that began in 2004, as thousands were in the streets, you were a volunteer distributing leaflets and camped on the square in freezing temperatures. When the Revolution of Dignity, the Euromaidan in late 2013 happened, you were 28 years old. What role did you play in, in that protest movement? When the Orange Revolution began, I was um, a third year uh, student of journalism in Kyiv. Before the elections, the second round, the, the one that was rigged ultimately, me and several of my other friends, we decided to go as election observers to Luhansk region of Ukraine, to the territory which is now under the control of Russian occupying forces. Uh, that was already back then quite a dangerous decision. Almost nobody wanted to go there. So there were very few volunteers. And I went there with uh, my other girlfriend students. And actually, we saw this uh, attempt, so, you know, of, uh, to rig the elections. I myself was kicked out of the polling station before the vote count, count began, as many other observers were. And uh, some of the observers of our team, they were even taken to forests and threatened from pneumatic weapons. That was an attempt to intimidate, you know, so the independent observers and somehow to show you are not welcome here. And of course, that, that was the region that was uh, pro-Yanukovych, so this pro-Russian uh, candidate where he had a strong influence there, also relying on the uh, criminal networks. And that was, you know, for me at 19, 19 years old student, a moment when I felt like very great injustice is happening. And so when I returned with this team from Luhansk next day on the bus, like at night, we were traveling on the night, uh, uh, returning to Kyiv, and we were wondering what's going to happen next. And the first thing in the morning that happened is the election commission tried to announce these results as official that Yanukovych won. But for everyone or for many people in the country, it was clear that the elections have been rigged because it was not just our experience in Luhansk regions. Reports of these irregularities were coming in from all regions of Ukraine. And then uh, by the end of that day, 
thousands of people started going down to the street of Kiev, to Central Square, to Maidan Square, in downtown Kiev, in, in protest against this election results. And, you know, I joined them again as a volunteer. I was uh, volunteering in so-called press center of Maidan where they were printing leaflets because at the time we didn't have cell phones yet, you know, and we still relied on print uh, press or leaflets to, to learn the news. And people who were camping in the square, and many of them arrived from different regions of Ukraine and they didn't have access to, to press or to other media. I was again uh, on the street on, on the streets of Kiev when the Euromaidan protests erupted. It was interesting because I just returned to Ukraine several months uh, earlier after a period of studies abroad. I studied in Italy and got my master's degree in the University of Bologna. And there's many Ukrainians, you know, I was wondering, should I return to Ukraine or should I use seize this opportunity and stay and live somewhere in the Western Europe? But then somehow I felt, uh, uh, you know, that I want to contribute to the development of my country. And this perspective also of Ukraine signing an, an association agreement with the EU was kind of one of the decisive uh, factors for me because I was thinking, okay, now we have like a lot of problems, but if we sign this uh, association agreement, if we get closer to the European Union, there is a chance for Ukraine to democratize and for its people to live in, in prosperity. So, you know, when these uh, dreams were shattered by the decision of uh, uh, Russian President Yanukovych not to sign this agreement, not only I was frustrated, a lot of Ukrainians were frustrated and they took to the streets. But what sparked the biggest protest was not even the decision not to sign the agreement, but the violence that ensued. Because uh, the police in the night attacked uh, uh, students who were camping on the square. There was a very small protest, just uh, several dozens of students, maybe 20 or 30. But uh, heavily armed riot police attacked this uh, disarmed young people. And that was actually caused the main and the biggest protest. A lot of Russian speakers actually have joined the Ukrainian army uh, to resist, uh, uh, you know, to fight against uh, Russian aggression. So language is not a marker of loyalty. And uh, um, um, when I'm speaking about the national identity and the fact that Ukraine is not divided anymore, I'm also referring to the fact that uh, even in those um, uh, regions of Ukraine that, uh, you know, have historically had closer ties with Russia that has been under uh, a Russian empire for a long time, for 300 years, such as southern and eastern Ukraine, in cities such as Odessa and Kharkiv, if you ask now people, uh, would they prefer to live in Russia or would they prefer to live in Ukraine, majority would say that they prefer Ukraine. This might be Russian-speaking people, but they have complete loyalty to Ukraine. We'll be right back after a short break. I love that line, and and I'm going to emphasize it again. Language is not loyalty, and that has gotten lost in some of the coverage. You know, in the Western media, it's pretty common to see these maps of what percentage of Russian speakers are in what part of the country. Obviously, the eastern part of Ukraine tends to be more historically uh, aligned with the pro-Russian mentality. But just because someone speaks Russian does not mean they're pro-invasion or support uh, kind of the usurpation of, of Ukrainian independence. And even the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, 
I believe, is a native Russian speaker. Yes, absolutely. He's from Krivirich, which is in Dnipro region in the eastern Ukraine. Actually, the region that uh, um, gave, uh, let's say, the highest number of Ukrainian defenders, the people who were uh, killed as a result of Russian aggression. So the, the highest number of soldiers who are casualties of this war, they are coming from Dnipro region, the eastern region of Ukraine that is bordering with the uh, Donetsk region, part of which is occupied by Russia. Yes, language doesn't equal uh, loyalty in Ukraine. And it's uh, remarkable that after this latest uh, uh, speech by Putin and his decision to recognize um, the so-called uh, Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, uh, some people, some Ukrainians on social media, they were posting that they are switching to Ukrainian. And as, uh, you know, uh, an acquaintance of mine, a uh, uh, great Ukrainian uh, film director, Irina Tsilik joked, she wrote that uh, the more Putin tries to persuade everyone that uh, Ukraine doesn't exist, the more Ukrainians appear, you know, that he just creates more Ukrainians. Yeah, yeah, I, I love that. You mentioned in 2004 during the Orange Revolution, you know, we didn't have cell phones, certainly in any kind of widespread way, and you were handing out the paper leaflets. Now everyone has a smartphone. One of the things we've been worried about for several months is the strength of Russian propaganda and disinformation. You said people were posting on social media after Putin's speech that we are Ukrainians and we're going to speak Ukrainian. How bad is disinformation right now in the social media space and uh, are, are people pushing back and what what's that dynamic like? Well, Russia has an uh, incredibly huge state-controlled propaganda machine that it uses to target uh, domestic audience, but also audiences abroad in Ukraine and in the West. And it tailors messages according to the audience. Ukraine has been targeted heavily by Russian disinformation and propaganda since 2014. And then we've seen the effects of it in actually um, that some people in uh, in Eastern Ukraine, they believed the Russian propaganda, uh, for example, that uh, there was this infamous fake about a crucified boy, that Ukrainian armed forces allegedly crucified a boy uh, in Slovyansk, in, in Donetsk region in Eastern Ukraine. And back then, some people believed this. Uh, they were really convinced that Ukrainian army would be coming and killing people because they speak Russian or that Ukrainian armies, uh, they are all Nazis and they hate uh, people from the Eastern Ukraine. So some people indeed believed this uh, kind of propaganda back, back at the time. And uh, that was also one of the reasons why uh, there has been not as much resistance to the advance of uh, Russian and Russian-backed forces. But since uh, uh, these eight years that these territories have been occupied by Russia, many people actually saw the deception and how many lies were there and um, that the situation is in fact very different and the reality is very different from the one that was represented by Russian propaganda. Because, in fact, in the occupied territories, the human rights situation is very dire. There are secret prisons where people are put, they are tortured, raped and killed there without a fair trial for minor offenses, such as a pro-Ukrainian comment on social media. It's a territory of lawlessness and complete disregard for human rights. It's also the economy has been suffering a lot. Propaganda partly has lost its appeal because uh, we now have information and the people living there, they have information, they've seen the results of Russian occupation of these territories. 
But uh, propaganda is still powerful inside Russia, and it still uh, has a big impact on the Russian domestic audience. And also it, it has some impact in the West, in those countries that are le less resilient to it, uh, that understand less the danger uh, that it poses and how this disinformation uh, and propaganda operates. Yeah, ab absolutely. And we have people on one of our cable networks here in the United States who seem to be espousing Kremlin talking points every night, uh, which is disheartening. And Russia's disinformation campaign in America's 2016 election was was quite successful. And as you noted earlier in our conversation in Russia, they don't have the opposition media and they don't have the, the free media. If you're inside Russia, you may not be seeing the truth because you're only getting the government propaganda. You've mentioned a few times people posting on social media, people still out there, you wrote this op-ed. Uh, there have been reports that the, you know, the Russians have made a list of people in civil society and dissidents that they want to round up and put in camps. And yet people are still posting on social media and still speaking out. Why do you think that is? And what is that dynamic like? Well, this is not something new. You know, this is what KGB was doing in the Soviet Union. And that's what actually Stalin and uh, Soviet rulers were doing in Ukraine over the most of the 20th century when, uh, you know, there were widespread repressions against Ukrainian intelligentsia. Thousands of Ukrainian artists, poets, writers were shot or sent to prison camps in Siberia. So in a way, you know, these attempts of uh, exterminate, intimidate, crush the elite, the intellectual elite, the people who are leaders of the civil society who could inspire others, who could lead, uh, you know, other people and uh, raise them for protest. So Russia has been going after them in Ukraine for many, many years. So this is not something new. And this memory is actually very well alive because a lot of Ukrainians lost relatives, friends, uh, acquaintances in this repressive campaigns. Almost every Ukrainian family was affected by the Great Famine in the 1930s, the artificial um, famine organized by Stalin and known as Holodomor. So there is a you know, very traumatic uh, memory uh, of uh, persecution of Ukrainians, of extermination of Ukrainians that is still present. But despite all this attempt to crush uh, the Ukrainian spirit, to crush uh, Ukrainian people and to erase their national identity also with imposition of Russian language and education everywhere, um, and that's actually uh, why there are so many Russian speakers in Ukraine currently, because the Ukrainian language was effectively banned for long, long years. Uh, so despite despite that, you know, Ukraine still and Ukrainians still shown that uh, they are incredibly resilient and they are not afraid and they are courageous. And that's what I think uh, irritates Putin so much. And that's what makes him hate Ukraine so much that all the attempts, you know, of crushing Ukraine and Ukrainian spirit of breaking it, uh, they, they are not succeeding. I'd like to ask, what message do you want to convey to your fellow Ukrainians? Well, uh, I want to convey a message that um, Ukrainians, you should believe in yourselves. You are much better than you think you are. 
because you know there have been centuries and decades of uh, imperial powers telling Ukrainians that somehow we are inferior that you know that there are like other peoples who are superior all this colonial attitude but i think uh, over the last 30 years since ukraine has been independent uh, ukrainians have shown uh, over and over again uh, what a brave and resilient and uh, uh, innovative people they are. You know, they were not uh, broken when they were struggling economically in, in the 1990s, in a very dire period uh, for the Ukrainian economy. Uh, they were not crushed, uh, uh, you know, by um, the attempts to rig the election. Like they, they won the Orange Revolution. They triumphed also in the Revolution of Dignity. And they were not even crushed when Russia attacked Ukraine militarily, uh, despite, you know, Ukraine having war on its territory for eight years, the Ukrainian economy has been growing, uh, the IT industry and other innovative sectors of economy have been booming. Ukrainian culture over these years have produced several directors who won international film festivals such as Sundance and others. Uh, Ukrainian music has been conquering at least the European audience uh, at the Eurovision Song Contest. So um, my message is uh, that Ukrainians should believe in themselves more, that they have a lot to offer to the world and that the world also has a lot to learn from Ukrainians. What message do you have for the United States and the Biden administration, as well as everyday Americans who might be listening? What should America be doing? Well, I really appreciate the support that is coming from the U.S., uh, uh, both from the administration in terms of delivery of defensive weapons to Ukraine and financial assistance, but also from ordinary Americans. I receive a lot of feedback also on, on Twitter, on social media, and I read the comments actually under this, uh, my opinion piece in the Washington Post. And I saw a lot of solidarity and a lot of Americans uh, um, you know, um, empathizing with Ukraine and uh, expressing their support. So I, I really appreciate that. Uh, and I hope more Americans could visit Ukraine to see what a beautiful country it is also in terms of nature, in terms of food, in terms of what it has to offer. And I hope there will be peace in Ukraine so you could all be welcome here. I hope that too. You know, I think a lot of Americans don't understand just how big a country it is. It's about the size of Texas. And if you put Ukraine on the U.S. map, it would stretch from New York in the east to Chicago in the west. So there's a, a lot of vibrancy, a lot of a, a wonderful culture in a beautiful, beautiful country. Uh, Olga, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. And uh, please stay safe. Thank you, James. Vladimir Putin declared war on Ukraine in a speech delivered from the Kremlin around 6 a.m. Thursday, Moscow time. As he did so, the United Nations Security Council was holding an emergency meeting in New York. Ukraine's ambassador to the U.N., Serhii Kitslitsa, had this to say to his Russian counterpart. There is no purgatory for war criminals. They go straight to hell, Ambassador. Meanwhile... Around the same time, the Post's Whitney Leeming spotted a young boy playing the piano in a hotel lobby in Kharkiv, the second largest city in Ukraine, as Russian troops advanced. It's haunting. And I want to close with Whitney's recording.
Please Go On is produced by Julie Deppenbrock with editing from Allison Michaels, Michael Duffy, and Renita Jablonski. This episode was mixed by Veronica Simonetti. Our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. The show notes include a link to Olga's op-ed. If you liked this episode, please give us a rating and review. It helps new listeners find us. I'm James Holman, and I'll be back next week because there's always more to say.